Welcome back to another episode of ASE Digs Deeper. I'm your host Emily and today I'll be talking to ASE archaeologist John Sygrave about the Whitehawk Camp Community Project. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi there, I'm a project manager at Archaeology Southeast. Um, I'm a field archaeologist, I've been working in field archaeology in the British Isles for Oh, about the last 25 years or so. <laughs> um, about 10 years ago, I, I did an MA at UCL, and um, and my dissertation from that was to do with the Sussex Neolithic. Um, a, about that time, I started getting interested in Sussex Neolithic sites, and that's sort of where where this project sort of like came from. Right, yeah. So, so it's quite uh, local to Brighton, what we're going to be talking about today. So especially for those who might not be aware of, of Whitehawk um, and the Sussex Neolithic. Do you want to tell us a bit about this like really significant archaeological site? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so Whitehawk Camp is, um, is a monument type called uh, Causeway Enclosure, uh, Early Neolithic Causeway Enclosure. The form of the monument is a series of concentric ditches, concentric circular ditches. There's four ditches. Um, and these ditches are not continuous, they mm. are broken up, and that's where it gets its name Causeway from, because there's gaps in between. Right. Um, and the ditches were very much constructed as a series of pits oh, okay. all, the, all yeah. the way around. Now, some of the causeways would have been entranceways, and there was posts and, and structure associated with them, and some of them wouldn't have been. Um, but it was just, that's, that was the construction method and it's very typical of this period basically mm-hmm. what sort of date range are we talking here this site dates to about 3650 bc just about <laughs> well basically uh, and the reason why we can be so accurate about this is because there was a fantastic um dating project which was undertaken in about 2011 called gathering time uh, undertaken by alistair whittle francis healy mm. alex bayliss and others um, and um, and they set out to try and date all of these uh, monuments using available C14 dates, but also they did a, a load more dates and then used Bayesian modelling to, to really narrow down the period where these sites were uh, started and uh, and how long they may have uh, carried on for. So, for instance, Whitehawk, is, I don't think it's the earliest, but it's certainly, they're, they're all within this quite tight sort of like time frame of about 3700 BC to about 3000 BC somewhere within there but but Whitehawk that they're estimating starts around 3650 BC and its use carries on for somewhere between about 75 and 250 years okay which isn't really a a very long period of time So if you, if you take the, the beginning of the British Neolithic at about 4000 BC, you start seeing these monuments uh, developing mainly in the, in the south of England, but there are outliers elsewhere. But um, from about 3700 BC, something along uh, those terms. Now, um, there's other monument types that are a little bit earlier. We've got flint mine sites um, over near Worthing, uh, Sisbury being one of them. 
um, which uh, date back probably to about 4000 BC. And of course, you also get uh, long barrows, mm. um, which were a little bit earlier than causedweight enclosures as well. But the difference between those sites and causedweight enclosures is that where they are rich, and they're not all rich, but where they are rich, like Whitehawk, you get an immense amount of archaeological uh, data. Um, some of which is stratified, some of which is, is structured in its, its deposition. Um, the flint mine sites, they're huge, and there's been a lot of activity there, but the most of that activity has been the, the moving of natural deposits. The Long Barrow sites, they are essentially funeral monuments, although there are other aspects of archaeology that has been noted on those sites, such as like ard marks underneath them or things of that nature. But at, at sites like Whitehawk, you get a huge range of archaeological deposits from human funerary remains to um, what appears to be everyday life and, and, and tasks which were even either taking place on the site or, or nearby. And, and that's, that's why these sites are of such great importance. The key thing of this is that not all of them are as rich and as complicated mm. as Whitehawk. You know, mm. they may have aspects of this, but then they're not all this all the same so yeah so whitehawk was excavated in the 20s and 30s so i'm just thinking about this this rich assemblage and and how well that archive you know was excavated at the time with what we would consider like an archaeological methodology that would be appropriate for excavating today and how well that survived yeah so whitehawk was one of the first group of sites which became type sites for causeway enclosures. Now, that these were all starting to be identified and investigated in the 1920s. Whitehawk was a, a sort of cause celeb in um, <laughs> in in Brighton, like that, because the the Brighton Hove Archaeological Society, as it is now, used to be Brighton and Hove Archaeological Club. Right. Um, also, there was a very active, um, you know, archaeological service and museum. Uh, Herbert Toms, curator at Brighton Museum, and also investigated the monument. Before we knew what the monument was, there was a lot of lobbying uh, locally um, to protect the site and to understand better what it was. This eventually sort of turned into a, a, a sort of like a, a survey of the monument, which un was undertaken in 1928. Mm -hmm. um, and the first, the first thing they did was do a topographical survey of the monument. They also did something called bozing which is like an early form of geophysical survey, I suppose. Okay. And, um, and, and what they did on the site is you, you go along and you drop a very heavy weight on the ground <sighs> and you uh, listen to see whether or not it echoes or whether or not there's you know, a hard thump, basically trying to right. uh, discern whether or not you've got uh, deep cut features into the chalk or whether you've got a shallow topsoil over the hard chalk. And, okay. um, and and they surveyed the whole monument, six hectares like this. Like echolocation? <laughs> like echolocation, basically, <laughs> yeah. It's called bozing. Bozing, okay. Um, so that was the first thing that they did. Right. Um, and then um, there was an excavation by a, a guy called Ross Williamson in, in 1929, just in the north of the monument. When that excavation took place and generated pottery known to be of a neolithic type then they had it confirmed basically mm. that what they were looking at was a, a, a neolithic monument um now that was quite a small scale excavation 
Um, but then there was two further subsequent um, excavations. The other thing interesting about those was that part of the reason to protect the site was that Brighton was expanding as a city at the mm. time. Um, the the race course was very popular, and Brighton Racecourse is situated just by this monument. So basically, they wanted to create a pulling up track, and that had to be through the middle of this monument. Uh oh. <laughs> I know. When it was already a scheduled monument ah. uh, as well. And, uh, and Brighton Corporation wanted to build a, uh, a road through the centre of the monument as oh well, uh, linking parts of Brighton to a new housing estate. Mm. Both, both of these excavations were allowed to take place on the proviso that uh, Brighton Racecourse and Brighton Corporation paid for proper archaeological excavations. Right. It's very so, early um, for that sort of thing. It is, and it's like it's it's one of the earliest sort of like examples of uh, you know developer funded yeah archaeological excavations yeah yeah that kind Great. of thing. Now Ross Williams' excavation in 1929, following on from this Bosing survey, mm. sort of like proved that the monument was what they thought it was, i.e., like early Neolithic monument. The second excavation in in 1932 33 was led by uh, Kerwin a notable um, local archaeologist. But the majority of the excavation was undertaken by local labourers. It's a fantastic black and white photo record of the excavation showing what they did. And Mm. what they did was they partitioned areas up um, and then they set the, the workmen on site the task of digging down a specified depth. Okay. Um, and then called those spits so you had excavation areas split into cuttings and split into um, nine inch deep spits so these are quite big areas but okay. it you know it's still allowed for some division of the defines assemblage mm. so even now you you've got you've got marked finds from the site saying that you know this is from cutting one and they also numbered the ditches so when they're excavating, they're digging by spit, they're digging by cutting, and they're recording which ditch it comes from. So whilst it's not, you know, it's not context recording as we would undertake it today, and they're not recording precisely where all of the finds would have come from, which if we were on such a site today, we would be like 3Ding important yeah. finds, and, and they weren't doing that. But at least we can say... Okay that this artefact came from this ditch in this area of that ditch at this depth, roughly. Mm. So, to be honest, for that period, excavating with labourers rather than a team of archaeologists, it, it was really, yeah. you know, it was really good. Yeah. yeah. Now, the last excavation on the site, which was the one which went cut right across the, the site for the roadway going mm-hmm. through, there was a growing interest in this site, uh, I believe Mortimer Wheeler uh, from the um, Institute of Archaeology had visited mm. the site as well. And when that excavation was taking place, Kerwin had uh, requested the assistance of the Institute of Archaeology. So it does link back to right. our history as an organisation as well. Yeah. Um, and a, a team of archaeological students from what was the Institute of Archaeology at the time came down and formed the team of core workers on the site. 
okay. um, for the 1935 excavation. So by the 1935 excavation, you are having professional, student, yeah. academic, archaeologists working as a team on site. Not that there wasn't a team of archaeologists on site for the 1933 excavation, right, 1932-33, but there was also 50 labourers, you know. So yeah. it's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. how, how much can one archaeologist understand what's coming up with that yeah. volume of material but um so what i'm what i'm trying to say is that for its time it was recorded really well mm. yeah so let's bring us forward to the future well not the future the the, per- the present past and let's talk about how the whitehawk camp community project came to be and and how it involves the archaeology and and obviously the community yeah well it's a story of lots of people who love this space, love mm. this site, love this area, all coming together, basically. And a long he- uh, history of individuals and organisations lobbying for its protection. Um, as I mentioned before, the Brighton Hove Archaeological Society Club, as it was, um, has been lobbying uh, for the protection of this site since the turn of the century, turn mm. of the 19th, <laughs> the 20th century. century, that is. You know, <laughs> It's like now we're in the 21st century. But... Yeah. Um, also, Brighton Museum and Art Gallery was the repository of the archive mm. um, from those excavations. And it's obviously had a, a real interest in being able to better display and better explain the value of its collection to, to the people of Brighton and, and mm. wider community. Um, the other aspect of the, of the hill is that um, partly because of the monument, partly because of the... Um, Brighton Racecourse uh, nearby, it's been preserved as a little island of uh, of chalk downland, um, which has survived, where elsewhere, certainly within Brighton, it, it mm. hasn't, um, partly due to the expansion of the urban area, yeah. um, partly due to changes in land use management, because right. it, it used to be um, heavily grazed by sheep, all of the area did. Um, until basically uh, you started getting cheaper imports of uh, of lamb and things mm. coming in from New Zealand and, and other places. These areas of chalk grassland then uh, were partially grazed by rabbits for, for quite some time. But then you get um, myxomatosis being mm. um, uh, introduced, which then like massively uh, curtails the rabbit population. But this is all a gradual process, and over those years, these areas of chalk ground, uh, grassland have become diminished, um, mm. and um, and you start getting bramble growth and other other growth happening, um, and that's that's the story of what's been happening to Whitehawk. There's still pockets where it's mm. still very fantastic chalk grassland. Now, the Brighton and Hove Ranger Service, which is part of City Parks. They had a great interest in trying to preserve what chalk grassland remained and mm. also try and expand any areas and, and undertake conservation work. At the same time, you also have conservation groups interested in the hill. So yeah. volunteer groups like the Friends of Whitehawk Hill. Um, you also have allotment and food groups. You have uh, groups interested in creating orchards. You have groups that are interested just in their community areas, such as Cravendale and Whitehawk. And the, 
the race course as well. Mm. So you've got lots and lots of interested parties all valuing this site, which was unfortunately, through the later part of the 20th century, becoming more and more run down. Mm. So let me get this right. It, it needs the grazing on it to remain chalk grassland. Is that... Yes. Right, that's okay. The, it needs active control um, of species such as brambles and things like that. Mm, Once you okay. start getting brambles taking hold, they become sort of like a, the dominant species. Right. And what you you don't have the complexity of um, of species within the chalk grassland that, that you okay. once had. Uh, it One of the... The Brighton Hove Rangers, Paul Gorringe, who's the who's the ranger for Whitehawk Hill, describes it sort of like a, a little rainforest in microcosm. You know, it's right. like um, there's little niches which each of these plants and animals has uh, has, has has found on the mm-hmm. site. I don't profess to be, you know, I'm not a great natural uh, <laughs> historian. Heritage. No, exactly. <laughs> but I, I do know from what others have said yeah. about the site that it's inc- it's incredibly valuable. Um, yeah. in, the, in those terms today so basically there's lots of different reasons why the site is important and and what the project attempted to do was to bring together all of those different groups in order to make our voices louder mm. and it worked because you got funding <laughs> it it did yeah of, of course with all of these projects is it's as much about legacy and history and I'm continuing like mm. work as far as possible and yes we were funded by the heritage lottery fund mm-hmm. that was as much a, a sort of a representation of all of those things that I've just spoken about yeah uh, colleagues such as uh, Sarah Wolfston and uh, mm. Hilary Orange um, helped put together the bid for that and it's a fantastic bid but they had all of this evidence to draw upon as to why it was a fantastic bid right so um, I started becoming involved um, in the site about 2006 2007 because uh, one of our colleagues Matt Pope introduced me to the site because I was li- literally just living around the corner at the <laughs> time um, but also at the time there was vehicles getting access to the site, there was rutting happening, oh, the sheep no. grazing had stopped, so the council was um, controlling vegetation on the site by driving tractors with gang mowers over the top of the monument in ah. order to, to mow it down, Yeah, which was successively scalping the top yeah. of the earthworks there. You know, there was areas of tarmac that had been laid, there was areas of... Uh, like made ground that had been brought onto the site. Oh no! Um, there was lots of refuse. It was just not a great place to be. Yeah. So way before we started getting HLF funding, what we were trying to do was to lobby Brighton Hove City Council to speak with English Heritage mm. about freeing up funds from wherever in order to protect the site. Because before the site was protected, you can't do anything else. That's the first yeah, thing that you have to right. do. You have to ensure it's protected. So we started undertaking, we got some money from uh, the CAA. We undertook a topographic survey of the site and we tried to plot on areas of damage and refuse. Um, Did you do any, we, any bowsing again? <laughs> no, we didn't do any bowsing. No, it would have been, yeah, would have been nice. Throwback. But, but since the 1920s, when that happened to now, there's been an immense amount of damage, made ground, change that has happened to that site. Mm. Considering that site's lasted for 6,000 years, 
the earthworks have diminished greatly over the last hundred years. There's been allotments put over it. There's been, like I said, roads and and pulling up tracks taken through it. There's been refuse and tarmac. You know, it it really has changed in character. Mm. I suppose it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm. You know, it's, it's in an urban environment. Urban environments are quick changing and not everything that happens within urban environments can be fully planned. You know, occasional services going across it or footfall mm. or, you know, erosion or things things like this. They all impact upon prehistoric monuments like Whitehawk and they get lost and people yeah. forget about them. And there's a, there's a road of houses that was built in the late 90s, which we as archaeological southern services, I believe, at the time we did the excavation for. Um, it's called Monument Way. It literally looks out onto the monument. Now, as part of this project, we, we knocked and we tried to speak to all of the people along Monument Way to just tell them what was on their doorstep. And, you know, having personally spoken to all of the people that live on Monument Way who look out their front doors onto the monument, maybe a third of them, at least, didn't know yeah. that there was a monument there even though they lived on Monument Way right. next to <laughs> next to the <laughs> monument, you know. It's like um, yeah. it, it was becoming forgotten. Yeah. Um, so we'd lobbied Brighton and Hove City Council and English Heritage to get bollards, basically, steel bollards to protect the site okay. so vehicles couldn't get on it anymore. We then applied to um, University College London for a, a grant to hold an open day on the site to raise public awareness and that was part of it as well it's part of the lobbying mm. because you need to show local government yeah. and organizations like English Heritage that people want change and want this you know it can't just come from individuals it has to be a group yeah. effort so we held a, a prehistoric archaeology day on the site and we tried to get all of these different groups on the site in so we had uh, the rangers brought sheep we had a local archaeological society doing um, geophysical survey. We had groups telling people about prehistoric diets and things on the site. We gave talks and took people around. You know, we tried to have lots of different kinds of activities. Mm. That was a real success. We held discussion groups with local residents and local volunteer groups in order to try and capture what they wanted um, to happen on the monument as well. Right. Um, that got written up within reports as well, so we could evidence these things. At the same time, the Rangers Service was also putting out a consultation to local residents about wanting to reintroduce sheep grazing and things on mm. the site. So again, like I said, all of these things converged yeah. on a su- successful application for Heritage Lottery funding. Yeah. yeah. So what was included in the project in the end? Okay, so there was various aspects of the project. So there was an archaeological aspect to it there was a sort of like sorting out uh, the site and trying to restore the site mm-hmm. the surviving archive from the excavations held by brighton museum and art gallery was still within its original packaging okay you know shoe boxes and things like that yeah it was being stored at the time underneath the uh, brighton pavilion in the wine okay. cellars down in the there. wine cellars right so we had various things we had a um an archaeological project we had a reassessment of the and a repackaging and a recataloguing of the uh, of the archive held mm-hmm. by Brighton Museum and Art Gallery, and we had um, works to the site to improve the site. Right. The archaeological project, the fieldwork project on site, we wanted to know 
whether or not there was anything outside of the scheduled area, the scheduled area being set in 1924, okay. um, that could potentially relate to the known features within the monument. So we undertook a geophysical survey of the whole area with volunteers, and we mm-hmm. taught them geophysical surveying and how to process that data. So that identified anomalies outside of the, the area, and then we targeted those anomalies with trenches okay. in order to try and find out whether or not they were archaeological or, or, or what. Because if any of them proved to be Neolithic, then obviously if there was an argument to extend the, mm. the area of scheduling. And, you know, the whole project up to this point had been about protecting and stabilising what was there. And we right. wanted to make sure that we knew what was there so that we could protect it better. We targeted these anomalies with trenches um, and then we had a three-week field program where we took on uh, volunteers. Uh, also, Brighton Hove Archaeological Society provided skilled volunteers, and then that uh, that allowed us to have, you know, ten, fifteen unskilled volunteers a day mm. on the site as well. And we did that for three weeks solid. I think we ended up with about 160 different volunteers or, or, or something. Wow! You know, it was people. It was pretty, yeah, you know, pretty busy. <laughs> Unfortunately. Or fortunately, all of these features didn't prove to be Neolithic in in character. And also there was a very low background signature of Neolithic finds, um, which is something also that we discuss in the post-excavation assessment and the the academic publication Mm -hmm. on the site as to what is happening with natural processes on that site after the site finishes, such as soil loss such as the movement of material. But basically, just outside of the monument, outside of the capture points of the the ditches and the pits within it, there appears to be a very low, if if negligible, signature Mm. of of Neolithic archaeology. Which is interesting in itself, I guess. Yeah. Well, it says something as to what's happening with that site after it Mm. it finishes. What what we'd love to do at some point in the future is to have a look in the the steep valleys mm. either side to see how much of this material has in fact been washed off the site right. and is, is you know sitting within those valleys so there was the archaeological field work but there was also the site restoration work so Paul Goinge and the rangers team worked with conservation volunteers there's some fantastic conservation volunteer groups out there I think I mentioned the Friends of Whitehawk Hill, mm. who put in hours and hours trying to improve the uh, the quality of these these sites so there was rubbish collection there was replacement of fencing in order to facilitate sheep grazing mm. at the time there was a local guy with the ranger service who was collecting seeds from downland uh, species right. so that any scars resulting from the work could then be replugged with downland species grown from seeds from the the surrounding area. This is so you know? pure. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <such a> lo- <laughs> it was it's, it was so good, you know, yeah. so good. Um, and these, you know, and their conservation work continues. So so that was all happening with the site, and and also we installed a uh, interpretation board on the site right. as well, yeah. with to, to to inform people as to what's there. At the same time. The, the museum was facilitating a, a fantastic programme of reassessment of the archive and, and allowing people an opportunity and volunteers an opportunity to go through all of that material, of which there was an awful lot, um, in order to recatalogue it, um, rebag it, 
basically better conserve it for the for the future. In the process of doing that, um, they're also making it more accessible for academic research. I know that there was lots of academic projects which have happened since which mm. have been able to access that archive better right for for that purposes let's talk about the results of the of the post excavation sort of repackaging and was was there any reassessment and did there were there any new archaeological interpretations that came from this um yes very very much so so uh, so like i said there was um the archive project and the reassessment project first of all had volunteers repackaging and recataloging and stabilizing the collections but then um what we did was each of the um finds type was reassessed by uh by one of our specialists at archaeology mm-hmm. southeast um and we produced basically a post excavation assessment report mm. on the site as we would do for any excavation that we're doing at the moment Great, yeah. um because hlf is is so much about the volunteer experience you know you can't have volunteers sat next to specialists when they're doing all of this this work yeah. it doesn't really is is quite complicated like that so we got over that by basically running a series of seminars so once the specialist had looked at all of this material the people that were involved in that project and others were invited back and then the specialist was able to explain to them the importance of the material yeah, that they great. had been working on, if right. you see what I mean. Yeah, so yeah. otherwise it can be just, oh, this is nice, we're cleaning prehistoric pot. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, you know, it's, yeah, just, it's nice uh, for, for the sake of it, but not. it means a lot more than just what it is when added to the big picture. Yeah, there was a lot of findings from the site and Mm. and all I can say is that if people are really interested in it the post-excavation assessment and the the academic article that was produced after that is available on the UCL uh, website for the project yeah so very very briefly there's a lot of discussion as to the purposes of causebred enclosures Mm. what exactly they were there was a desire at one point to try and pigeonhole them into you know they are their feasting areas or their cattle areas or their funerary monuments or their this or their that we just see a huge volume of material um on site to the point where we reassess the pottery archive for instance bearing in mind that probably not all of it made its way to the museum of course of what we looked at the estimate that we came up with was that it probably represents somewhere between 500 and 2000 vessels wow the estimate of the total area of the site that's been excavated so far is probably about 10%. Oh gosh. So so that gives you some indication as to as to the extent of just pottery vessels that might mm, mm. be on that site. The animal remains from the site. You have everything from collected deer antler to uh, an awful lot of cattle bone, not just mm. meat bearing bones. Okay, yeah. You have sheep and pigs you know there's an awful lot um you also have evidence of flint working and there'll be a link the in site. the show notes to all you of have this evidence of um quern stones mm. being on the site presumably being used grinding to stuff grinding yeah. stuff you know possibly being brought up there to um be thrown in the ditches but you know mm. it's like it's, mm. it's more you also had evidence of domestic activities and things so we had bones which had been split to uh create Awls uh, and pins oh, okay. and, and things from. So it seems that kind of anything goes on this site. Like 
and the list goes on. It, it, the, the other thing is about, I think I touched on it before, is like site formation process. Mm. So a lot of this material is held within uh, a matrix, quite an organic matrix of material, and appears to have been probably in some form of midden on the site mm-hmm. before being introduced into the ditches. Okay, yeah. So how's it getting into the ditches? Uh, is it being purposefully refilled? Uh, is there other processes that are moving this material into the ditches? Mm. You know, what else is going on? As well, as well as that, we definitely do have structured deposits. You know, there's a small pit with a child buried in it. Right, there's, okay. Um, there's, an, uh, there's articulated human burial on the site, um, one of which was surrounded with big chalk blocks and mm. appears to have, uh, like, grave goods um, right. with her. But there's also disarticulated human bone. Right, so many different processes. There's a lot going on. It leaves me with a lot of questions that I think I should go probably read the PXA and <laughs> and find out for myself. So I, I suppose this this has been my experience of of undertaking a community project, but I understand that you've been involved in a lot more of the outreach work that ASC undertakes. Yeah. So how how does this fit in with that? outreach and community work that we've undertaken on other projects obviously ASE has like quite a big commitment to doing outreach and public engagement since I started ASE about three years ago I suppose I've been doing you know site site visits where we have open days at site and school visits where we go into school and but obviously uh, since the pandemic we've really upped our sort of online game I guess which this podcast is is one part of we've also got our video series on our youtube channel now called ase spotlights which is just sort of starting we're basically uh, taking a specialist or a field archaeologist and getting them to go through one aspect of archaeology that basically just uh, demystifies the whole archaeological process so that's that's kind of where we are at the moment is is really trying to sort of lift the veil of developer funded archaeology what the archaeological process is um, and making making content that's both useful for people with an interest in archaeology, but also to you know the archaeologists themselves. Like I'm just editing the video on waterlogged timber recording, which which I've never done, and I've learned a lot. <laughs> so, and that gives me an insight into their work and into the into the wider process itself. I think from a specialist perspective, we get quite a lot quite pigeonholed into what we're doing, and then. And then all of our stuff leads towards the end interpretation of the site. But having an understanding of what other people are doing and what they're finding out is is essential, I think, for us to to give better interpretations of our own um, materials. Uh, I think it's really exciting. Next time I'm sort of managing a site where there's waterlogged wood on, I think I'll probably listen to that uh, yeah. podcast before I start speaking to the specialist involved. Uh, if only to uh, make myself sound less stupid when I'm talking to them about, <laughs> it's so true, about the content. And I hope these are really useful for, yeah, for for archaeologists at ASE as well as the general public. Basically, if anyone has any uh, great ideas for any public archaeology uh, or public engagement projects, like we're listening. Uh, we we want to to bring as much as possible make our archaeology accessible to everyone who has a stake in that heritage. I think that probably rounds us off quite nicely with a good podcast that's taken us through a hundred years of archaeology. Um, 
So thank you so much for, for talking to us about the Whitehawk Community Project. No problem. Thank you. thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great and hopefully we can continue to do some things out there and continue to work with the natural history and conservation groups who are mm. also working on the site um, as soon as this horrible pandemic is at an right. end. So, um, yeah, so stay tuned to our social media accounts, everyone, um, for more information about that as and when it comes up. Okay, thank you, John. No problem. Okay, thanks, Emily. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Archaeology Southeast Digs Deeper. You can find more information about the episode in the show notes or on our website at ucl.ac.uk forward slash archaeology dash south dash east forward slash podcast. For more archaeology content, follow us on Twitter at ArcSoutheast and Facebook and Instagram at Archaeology Southeast. Thanks for listening.